Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, we are hanging out with our favorite Western patristic theologian, St. Augustine. One could say that all of Western theology has been but a series of footnotes to Augustine, as who was it? Nietzsche said that all of Western philosophy is a series of footnotes to Plato. Also said that Plato was a bore. That's wrong. Plato is pretty interesting. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. It was not Nietzsche who said that. It was Whitehead. Alfred North Whitehead. Oh, Whitehead. Whitehead is a bore. Okay, so let's move on. Anyway, back to back to the, the topic. <laughs> so uh, anyway, we a, a couple years ago we did an episode on Augustine's City of God, um, which I listened to all twenty four hours on audiobook. Don't recommend that. So we thought we'd try something a little shorter this time and uh, easier for all of you out there to read if you so desire. So Dad proposed one of Augustine's last writings from the end of his life. His Enchiridion. Dad, what interested you about this writing? Well, uh, I, you know, if you're a college student looking for cliff notes on Augustine, you can actually <laughs> get the essence of his theology by reading the Enchiridion on faith, hope, and love. It's a little, Enchiridion is a word for a handbook in those days. And uh, one of his fans, Laurentius by name, wanted a short guide to Christian piety and asked Augustine to write this. And believe it or not, Augustine managed to be less uh, prolix. Was that the right word? Prolix? Prolix? Prolix. Yes. Long-winded, except in writing. Yeah. Uh, uh, right. Then uh, usual. And at least it's a digestible uh, little book and it's uh, available for readers. If you want to just get the gist of Augustine's theology across the creedal catechetical spectrum, this is the book to read. There you go. And I should tell you, Dad, uh, nowadays students don't use cliff notes, they use spark notes, but probably actually what they're doing now is asking ChatGPT to spit out for them a summary of Augustine's <laughs> writing. Sir, but our listeners are actually hungry and thirsty for theology, so they will not want to cheat they will want to read Mark inward, in, inwardly digest. Agreed, and 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 this one is is it is worth reading, not only for its shortness, but as I was reading it, I sort of laughed to myself. This is a greatest hits compilation album for Augustine. <laughs> Does anyone remember what a compilation album is? Yeah, okay, we're showing our age. I'm even showing my age, Dad. You should should be comforted by that. Okay, so uh, what we'll do then is we'll just kind of proceed through it again because it has this kind of great, this hits compilation quality. It is not like strictly logically... Uh, developing an extended argument. But it does have a structure to it, which is that um, Augustine wants to talk about faith, hope, and love. So he decides to do it by talking through the Apostles' Creed and then the Lord's Prayer, though he gives considerably more time to the Apostles' Creed than he does to the Lord's Prayer. I think he was getting a little tired by the end or realizing how much he'd already written and better wrap it up quick. (laughs) Yeah, that's probably right. But, you know, let's make an interesting observation right at the outset. By focusing upon faith, hope, and love, Augustine begins or hands down to Western theology its characteristic interest in the human reception uh, of of the Christian faith, the uh, anthropocentric um, 
uh, kind of focus of Western theology, uh, which would later a thousand, you know, more than a thousand years later, mature in Luther's idea of the pro-me, the for-me, the pro-meity of faith. Um, and Augustine is focusing on how human beings receive the Christian faith. And that's kind of the structure of his approach to catechesis. He says at the beginning that that wisdom, um, the wisdom that the scripture recommends is equivalent to piety. Sophia is equivalent to eusebia, the Greek term for piety. So we can we translate with words like worship and so forth. But all of this basically means how the human being adheres to God in the present and will adhere to God in the eternal future. Mm. And because he's drawing on Paul's use, of course, of faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love in um, Romans 13, um, he also, though, does a, a a way of thinking about the relationship between to the, the three of those that will also be tremendously important for how Luther eventually will think, which is that, of course, Paul says the greatest of these is love. But Augustine says, without faith, nothing else is possible, which I think one could argue Paul also would agree with. So faith as the starting point. And, and Augustine adds uh, faith praise too, which is interesting. So faith itself is already an act of prayer and a- attachment direction of the self towards God. And um, I think in some of the, the later disputes over the role of faith or faith in justification or uh, criticisms I've heard of, of Lutheran doctrine is that love is the great thing, not faith. And, you know, often invoking James's, even even the demons believe and tremble. But I think what Augustine is showing us is that because the there is a content of the faith, faith understood as the message or doctrine, then the the self, the soul, has to have some encounter with this knowledge about God, message from God, before loving God is even possible. So even if love is the greatest thing, structurally you do not get to love unless you first have faith, which is the reception of this um, uh, indispensable knowledge about who and what God is. Yeah, it's not only, <clears throat> faith is not only the reception of the knowledge, it's the infusion uh, by the Holy Spirit uh, of love so that the um, information that's conveyed in the creed uh, uh, describes something that is intrinsically beautiful and attractive to us that captures our heart's desire. So the Spirit is the one who animates uh, the, the, uh, the soul to desire the things that are being presented to it, to the mind, by the creed, something like that, I suppose you could say. I think you can probably find, I I felt reading through this, that you could find in Augustine um, absolutely decisive proof texts for both the 16th century Lutheran and the 16th century Catholic arguments about the relationship between faith and love. (laughs) And therefore you'd have a hard time settling the debate just on the grounds of this Augustine text. And, And that's in fact, Luther thought that he had the anti-Pelagian Augustine wholly on his side. And in some early debates, uh, he was quite corrected uh, on that score by his Catholic opponents, uh, his papist opponents, to speak more historically accurately. And uh, so it even came about that Luther later spoke about the the imperfection of Augustine's teaching on justification. 
because Augustine, of course, held that the starting point of faith uh, by the work of the Spirit matures into the fulfillment or completion of faith in love of God. And, uh, of course, Luther doesn't disagree that that's what the Spirit does. He simply wants to cut off the discussion of justification at that starting point of faith by faith alone, and then uh, say that somehow once one is justified, then the process of of, of increasing love for God and neighbor uh, comes about. Uh, for Augustine, they're, they're on a continuum, and there is not this sharp distinction that the Lutheran Reformation required. Right. And I, I think you could probably set most of that to the Augustine and Luther, respectively, fighting very different kinds of battles. Absolutely. Of course, the contexts are extremely different. Uh, the point here is that for Augustine, faith is the starting point that puts us on the way to vision. And it's vision that is going to be the fulfillment of faith when we see face-to-face when we know even as we have been known, to quote Paul. And for Augustine, that's very important because faith, because it is not yet vision, is constantly um, afflicted faith. It's faith that is constantly in trial and tribulation. Um, And it it is not secure uh, in, in the object of its faith, which is the eternal God, the triune God. And that's also the reason why Augustine thinks that uh, in the kingdom of heaven, when the redeemed see God face to face, then they will love God immutably because their love is directly related to the immutable object of love, the God of love. So the way Augustine parses out the relationship of faith, hope, and love at the outset of this writing is he says that faith deals with past, present, and future things, and it encompasses both good and evil things. So there's a kind of like a total vision um, or, or total compass that faith involves. But then hope, he says, deals only with the future and only with good things. Makes sense. But both faith and hope have this in common, that they both deal with the unseen, definitionally, and and Paul says this too, faith and hope have to speak of things that are not seen. Uh, Hebrews also says that. But then Augustine concludes that there is no true faith and no true hope without love, the point being that all three virtues are mutually entailed with one another. I just, uh, as a a by-the-by dad, I've noticed that Hardly anyone talks about hope. (laughs) Faith and love are where all the theological action takes place, though I have a feeling that most humans dwell most often in hope, strong hope, rather than in strong faith or strong love. Do you have any thoughts particularly on on why why hope hope is kind of like the Holy Spirit of this trinity, the neglected one? Well, I think it has a lot to do with um, the the, uh, loss of the eschatological uh, expectation uh, of the New Testament. And in Augustine, that eschatological expectation, the beatific vision of God, for Augustine, that's what the kingdom of God is. We shall know even as we have been known, we shall see what we have thus far trusted on the report of the gospel by hearing, right? Um, uh, I think in 
the contemporary church, um, you know, at least in our, our kind of circles, um, the hope is kind of what you do for Christian funerals. You, you know, that we, we still say, in the sure and certain hope of the resurrection, we commit to God, our brother, sister, etc., something like that. But that, 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 that this should actually be the, the, um, the straining, that faith should strain forward in hope uh, in the expectation of righteousness, as Paul puts it in Galatians 5. I think that perspective is, uh, is uh, much diminished in the contemporary church. Um, there, there was the movement called the Theology of Hope from the, in the 1960s, uh, initiated by Jürgen Moltmann and also um, taken up by Wolfhard Pannenberg and Robert Jensen in particular. They were theologians of the eschaton of hope. Um, but um, I think, you know, we've talked about this before, Sarah. I think uh, a lot of people just find Christian, a lot of people today are hopeless, objectively hopeless. In an objectively godless world culture, is what I mean, an objectively godless culture, such as Western Europeans and North Americans live in today, there is no hope. The universe is going to end in a cosmic heat death. We're all going to just be frozen out. The lights are going to go out. Even if we migrate to new galaxies or something like that, the game's going to be over and there's no future. And and the earth is going to get burned up when the, the sun massively expands in X, uh, tens of thousands of years or whatever it is. Um, and I think even in our cultural, social situations, uh, people experience contemporary society as cutthroat, as, as, as uh, cutthroat and um, deceitful. Uh, and when you're just accepting that's the way it is and how can I survive from day to day, you have become objectively hopeless. Well, Okay, then we definitely need the Encaridion all the more to pump up some new hope in us. I just wonder also <laughs> if uh, somehow in, in English, hope has a weaker sense or connotation than faith does. I think like if we were just going from like a native English speaker's feeling about the words, we'd order it more like hope, faith, than love, rather than starting with faith and moving on to hope and love. One last thought about this. Augustine's influence extends down th through the Reformation uh, to of all people, uh, one of my favorite uh, whipping boys, Immanuel Kant, who, famous, <laughs> who famously said there are three great philosophical questions. What uh, can I know? What must I do? What may I hope? What can I know? Faith. What must I do? Love. What must I hope? Obviously hope, right? Uh, and Kant kind of organized his his uh, critiques of reason around those three questions. Of course, he had very different answers to these questions than Augustine did. Yeah, it's interesting that hope then shifts into the third place. Hmm. 
Okay, well, let's get digging into this. So um, again, it has the, most of it has this creedal structure. So we start with the doctrine of creation. And even though in the Apostles' Creed, it's very brief, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, Augustine seems to me spends probably more time on, on this than anything else, because there is quite a lot to unpack from that simple assertion of God as creator and everything else as creation. Um, and interestingly, I was so struck by how immediately relevant his observations are. The first thing Augustine has to say is that there is no conflict between reason and faith, no ultimate conflict. It is only a perceived conflict if there's one at all. And I think we can easily say that in our day and age, scientific inquiry, according to the uh, true and pure scientific method, which is not necessarily what is promulgated at large, um, there is no conflict, therefore, between scientific inquiry and matters of faith. And actually, Augustine is quite comfortable with a um, radical reduction of, let's say, the the detailed or factual or long historical claims about the when and how of creation, he simply says, for the Christian, it is enough to believe that the cause of all created things, whether in heaven or on earth, whether visible or invisible, is nothing other than the goodness of the creator, who is the one and true God. Nothing exists, nothing exists save God himself and what comes from him. That's it. Very basic. What do you think of that, Dad? It's basically then creation is a doctrine in the first place about who and what God is, and not in the first place about uh, the origins of the cosmos. Uh, of course, it will want to, uh, the faith in God, the Creator, will go on to interpret our best available scientific thinking about the origins of the cosmos or the structure or the nature of the cosmos. But it's not in the first place about that. Way back at the beginning of his career in the Confessions, Augustine reports about his uh, encounter with the Manichaean teacher Faustus, and uh, who had, the Manichaeans had all sorts of elaborate uh, pseudoscientific uh, uh, speculations and predictions about the cosmic order. And Augustine, when he be, was becoming skeptical of this, uh, challenged Faustus face-to-face -face on these cosmo cosmological teachings of Manichaeism and confronted him with the detailed uh, uh, knowledge of the movements of the planets and the stars from the astronomers and dumb dumbfounded him. <laughs> right. Faustus went away sad, for he great was his investment in the Manichaean doctrine. Uh, but Augustine then draws the conclusion, theologians should never dogmatize on the basis of faith and creed and scripture about what are properly matters of scientific investigation. So he makes a kind of a, a regional uh, differentiation, a jurisdiction differentiation. So I think the teeth of this claim is not actually, it, it, well, in his time, it certainly was that. But I think for us, the teeth of the claim lies in his saying the cause of all created things is the goodness of the creator, not simply the creator, but the goodness right. of the creator. And the, a lot of the um, objections I have heard to faith in God, however construed, God as creator, is how many awful things are within 
creation. And even if you try to say, well, you know, uh, evolution is God's method of ongoing creation and, and sustenance. Well, evolution is pretty damn harsh. <laughs> and it it is, requires yeah. a, a lot of failures and a lot of blood. And uh, even when things are going along smoothly and swim, sw- swimmingly, uh, predation is built into it. And there are mosquitoes and there are really nasty parasites. And so uh, how, how can you attribute um, all this uh, to a, a good creator? Um and uh, how how the goodness, uh, the uh, self-evident goodness and belo- benevolence of the creation for human benefit has kind of taken over as the whole contents of the Christian faith, as it has been popularly perceived in the last several hundred years, is a, is a good topic to take up at another time. But I think this is why Augustine immediately in his own work goes into an extended discussion of evil, of both privation and error. The the stuff on privation is, is pretty um familiar, so I, well, I think we'll deal with it quickly. But I thought his reflections on error were particularly, they, they were new to me, and I thought they were fascinating. But Dad, would you like to just weigh in on the evil as privation and an endless topic of debate among theologians and philosophers? Well, I think it's, it's, a, it's a, again, Augustine is stamped by his battle against Gnostic dualism. And as difficult as the teaching is that everything comes from the goodness of the Creator, and that there is nothing but the Creator and what the Creator creates, that that's the Christian faith's account of reality. Um, the, uh, the, teach, the, the burning point here is to affirm the goodness of the material world in spite of the difficulties of it. So that's, that's the anti-Manichaean affirmation, the goodness of the created world. Why? Because the creator is good and is motivated by the creator's own goodness. And then you get a couple of implications of that that are very important for Augustine's theology. Evil is not anything. There's no thing that is evil. Everything in the world is a good creature of God, including the thing which is the devil and the evil angels for Augustine, um, or the, or the, the human being of the wicked sinner. Um, um, but this allows him then to explain evil as a, a change which is falling away from the good. Uh, so what kind, what kind of reality does evil have? You use the word privation, a privation of being, falling away from the good. Uh, but nevertheless, that doesn't mean it's unreal or not actual in the, in the, in the created realm. It's a real as a decline, as a falling away from. The fall is a falling away from the good. And as a result, you can then draw a couple of inferences from this. Uh, the, uh, what is denied is that it's the, what the doctrine of privation, evil as privation denies is that it's evil to be human. That's a denial. There, there are there are doctrines and theologies which basically regard, as you've been talking about, this contempt for the human uh, that you've been a theme of yours in recent podcasts. Um, this is exactly what Augustine's doctrine rejects. It is not evil to be human. It is good to be human, with all the uh, you know all the natural evils that attend being human. Uh, and the other thing that it denies is that it's good to be wicked. 
So it denies mm-hmm. that it's evil to be human, and it denies that it's good to be wicked, um, right? And then finally, I think the last implication of it is that evil lives parasitically on its victims. That um, you uh, kind of mentioned to me that how, how come the devil hasn't simply consumed himself, extinguished <laughs> himself, uh, and become basically nothing because that's all he is? Well. He keeps finding new victims, and he lives uh, like a Dracula, like a vampire. He lives as a parasite on his victims. Uh, and, and so that's that's how evil as privation works and how it is actual in the created realm. You know, that's interesting. A, a number of years ago, I was, I was toying around with writing a, a, a story or a novel in which the devil would be a character, because, you know, that, that happens. That has happened. And... Um, and so I, I set myself the unholy task of trying to contemplate what, what the devil might be like uh, to be thematized as a character. And I realized that the reason why um, that always fails is because we end up, like Milton famously, makes the devil the most attractive and interesting character in Paradise Lost because he always ends up becoming not actually the devil, but a corrupted human. And when I put myself to the task of trying to imagine what the devil was like, actually what I had was sort of a, a mental image of just a huge yawning mouth that was only just trying to stuff itself as much as possible. It's just hmm. purely, purely consuming. And then I suddenly realized this is not actually an interesting character. <laughs> and and there, there's actually no story to tell because it's just uh, so may, maybe that that is sort of my adaptation of the privation or preying upon being uh, uh, that the devil simply consumes and so sustains itself. I, I guess largely speaking, I, I, the pri- evil as privation gets me like 80% of the way there <laughs> towards explaining, but it always seems to me at some point it just, it stops working. It doesn't quite, and I, I, I think like you, you have said, sometimes these doctrines function more like grammatical rules or barriers to speculation rather than, than substantial claims in and of themselves. And I think that for me, evil as privation functions that way. It's a, a warning post or um, it, it protects other things like the goodness of, of human or material existence, but I, somehow it doesn't quite satisfy. D- does it satisfy you fully as an account of evil in the, in, in the created world? I think that uh, I'm very drawn to Karl Barth's um, um, updating of Augustine's doctrine, Karl Barth's untranslatable German word, das Nichtige, um, which is... Uh, the annihilator. I don't know. You can't really put it into English, but uh, for Bart, basically, and I think he is surreptitiously drawing on Leibniz, and these are all thinkers in the Augustinian tradition, and they sense this idea of evil as privation seems to undercut the vivid and horrible human experience of moral evils. Um, And Part of the Augustinian doctrine, I didn't mention this and it's probably important, is you have to make a distinction between natural evil and moral evil. Because there are many evils, natural evils, that simply attend any conceivable creatures. Creatures are, are, are uh, ineluctably vulnerable. They have a birth and they have a death. They have a beginning, they have an end. And in between, they're always exposed 
uh, to pain, suffering, uh, and uh, even uh, death. Uh, my, so my example th of this is always that gravity is the force that allows atoms to hold together in clusters, thus allowing there to be living beings at all. And gravity is also the force that will kill those beings if they fall from a great enough height. So the two right, are mutually exactly. entailed. You can't have one without the other. Right. Like night and day. Yes. And, uh, the, the, and that's how uh, people like Leibniz and Barth talk about natural evils. And it's also, you know, a kind of an existential or psychological explanation of how human beings become morally evil when they're overwhelmed at, with anxiety at their vulnerabilities and they uh, go on the initiative to prevent themselves from being possibly hurt and then they become aggressors. They lash out and become aggressive. Um, and they, like the rich fool, they try to... Uh, secure their future with, by building a bigger barn to store their goods. Uh, but the, the, these invulnerability strategies do not work, and in the process they harm a lot of others around us. They disrupt the ecological web of life in numerous ways. Um, so th this doctrine really has a lot of explanatory power, too. In the denial of death, one becomes a killer. Even if we are not killers, we may be liars. And so next, Augustine, Augustine turns to error and lying. Now, he actually wrote earlier in life a treatise on lying. And in reading the Enchiridion, I remembered that not only did I read that, but I think in seminary, I wrote a paper on it and compared it with Bonhoeffer on lying. And um, I'm as uh, listeners may have figured out, I'm kind of fascinated by the problem of speech and uh, lying. And Augustine here, you know, you can tell he's had more time to reflect on the problem of of truth and speech, but also the nature of knowledge itself. And I, I think his his um, working his way towards ep epistemic humility in the face of a very confusing <laughs> knowledge landscape is really helpful for us now. So he starts with the observation that all knowledge is ambiguous because all knowledge is partial. And um, I just think as a starting point for us in our day and age, that's really important because there is still this aspirationalism towards total knowledge, which usually means something more like total data, um, though not necessarily, uh, well, besides the fact that data cannot be total, that there uh, remains the problem of interpreting it and much more the problem of using it. But I think it's quite remarkable that someone like Augustine, who is so learned and so committed to catechism and knowledge can nevertheless admit from the outset knowledge, human knowledge is inherently ambiguous and that is not a problem that can be solved in this life. Right. We are finite creatures and our knowledge is finite. It's always from a particular uh, perspective. It's always a, a particular way of interpretation of, of what is available, what the available evidence is, Right. And that means it's going to have blind spots. It's not going to be comprehensive. It's not going to be a total picture. It cannot be a total picture. And even as we science progresses and we get more and more comprehensive pictures, they can never fully comprehend anything just because of the inbuilt limitation of being a finite creature and therefore subject to error. Not to mention the fact that as our finite perspectives are also afflicted 
with egocentrism in the moral sense, and so that we're inclined to interpret what we see uh, uh, in our own interest at the expense of the interest of others. So, I mean, this really speaks to me because, um, again, listeners probably can infer you and I are both people who thirst wildly after knowledge and are always cramming our brains with it. And, um, you know, I am now old enough to appreciate uh, uh, wisely rather than sophomorically Socrates' observation that all I know is that I know nothing. And indeed, the more you learn, the more you realize how much you don't actually know. But I'm also intrigued by the fact that... um, there's still uh, an, instinct, an instinct in me that if I just know a little bit more, I'll be able to make a better decision. And the existential reality that often adding knowledge um, makes it harder to make a decision <laughs> rather than, than easier. Right. And this is on all levels from the very minute, like, which brand of toothpaste is best to, um, you know, like, how do I parent, you know, or how do I pastor? Gigantic questions like this. And it's very clear to me that, like, ceasing to learn, uh, much less affirming know-nothingism or anti-intellectualism is by no means an answer. And yet at the same time, there seems to be this kind of the farther you go in knowledge, the more the more its ambigu- ambiguity and uh, reveals itself to you. Um, and since you are a little farther along in life and a, a far more um, brain-stuffed full of knowledge, I, I'm just curious what your reflections are on this for yourself. As I en- enter my seventh decade and look around the room from which we're recording this podcast, my library, and I say to myself, so many books, so little time. <laughs> <laughs> right. And and that's you know that's true. There, uh, uh, yes, you 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 perhaps in a salutary way you acquire some humility about uh, what human you're, and then you also have to remember what you or I know today is built upon generations and generations of trial and error and painful progress. You know, you and I don't have to. You uh, wrestle with the problem of gravity. Isaac Newton solved that for us. <laughs> How long ago, right? We don't have to try every plant we come across in the forests and fields, hoping that it's not poisonous and possibly delicious. That's been solved right. for us, right? And we inherit this accumulated knowledge, um, and maybe we add a little bit to humanity's knowledge uh, as we have our brief uh, time here on planet Earth. Uh, at least we hope we do, and we don't uh, hurt the, that legacy of knowledge. Uh, but yes, Augustine's spot on here to make us come to terms with the inevitability of error and therefore the ambiguity of all of our knowledge. I think that's very important. However, however, in the process, Augustine is also arguing against radical skepticism that won't assert anything on the off chance of it being wrong, <laughs> right? I right, mean, right, right. that's his real enemy, the skeptics, the dogmatic skeptics. And he's really the source of the argument But um, that Descartes later picks, Descartes Descartes. Later picks up. Descartes later, later picks up in the Meditations on First Philosophy to refute skepticism. But I noticed in reading the Enchiridion, Augustine's formulation is not cogito ergo sum, I think therefore I am. Augustine's formulation here is 
vivo ergo sum. I live, therefore I am. I, I can't deny that I'm alive. And so that, that gives a little bit of a different flavor to the refutation of, of uh, skepticism. Yeah, not least of all because it, it it's embodied, <laughs> whereas Descartes exactly. th thinks he can think disembodiedly. Um, all right, well, so I what I thought was really interesting here is then he goes on to meditate on error because if all knowledge is ambiguous and partial, it's going to be riddled with errors. And here's the problem. Sometimes error serves us better than truth. And he gives the example of getting lost and not going the route that you were supposed to go and thereby being spared the bandits who were waiting on the route you were supposed to go on because they knew that you were going to come that way. So he, he's really puzzling over how it is that in that case, error can serve you. And he seems to fall back on the solution that um, intent is more, is the most important thing. Um, and I, I think this is very deep in also the Western juridical tradition of hence the difference between like manslaughter accidentally causing someone's death and homicide, which is intentionally causing someone's death, even though the outcome in both cases is identical. And so Augustine wants to argue that um, the problem with error and the problem with lying is, first of all, what it does to you. And lying in particular harms you, the liar, more than it harms the person who is lied to. And thus, Augustine argues, it's better to be deceived than to deceive. And it is better to judge a bad man good on based on um, impartial and inadequate knowledge and co consequently suffer evil on account of your favorable misjudgments than to presumably judge people bad uh, who aren't actually bad. Um, I have personally some, I mean, I understand what he's getting here. He's talking about the corruption of the soul in and of itself. I get that. However, it seems to me that he has not fully thought this through. I, I think maybe because also I'm a woman, <laughs> I'm not at all convinced that it is better to be deceived by a bad man that you thought it uh, that you thought was good, uh, because that is a, a great deal of the history of, of womankind. <laughs> but also because I think it's true that people's souls are harmed actually in themselves by being deceived by others and by misjudging others and then being the object of their harmful actions. I think that has a corrupting power that Augustine, to, to my thinking, has not fully um, recognized. Yeah, I think you're right about that, Sarah. That, that's a good... Uh feminist point to make here, a, a kind of a correction of a one-sided analysis by Augustine. Um, let me point out that Augustine's argument here has an ancestry that goes back to Socrates. At least Plato, Socrates just says as a matter of principle, it is better to suffer evil than to commit evil. It is better to suffer evil than to commit evil. If you're concerned about the righteousness of your soul, uh, that seems to be pretty evidently true. Um, but then you can fast forward again all the way up to Immanuel Kant. I've told this episode, I won't repeat it all quickly, but uh, a feminist uh, philosopher uh, uh, has made a, quite a federal case out of, out of this against the heartlessness and the, and the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the patriarchal bias of Immanuel Kant's teaching that it's never possible to lie because that is uh, uh, failing to treat the other as a rational agent. And that no matter what the circumstances, you're obligated to treat 
others as rational agents, which means you're obligated to give them the truth. Uh, and then, of course, he had this woman, he, uh, this princess, I think, that was corresponding with him, and she had a, a personal secret and wanted Kant's advice should she tell her fiancé about it. And Kant insisted that she should, and she did, and the fiancé broke off the relationship, and she was in despair, and Kant refused to correspond with her any further uh, and told her, basically, man up, woman. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and then evidently she committed suicide at some point later on. So I think your point is well taken. There is a kind of a blind spot here um, uh, in this analysis. And I think there is a, um, a false virtue in the naivete that refuses to own up to painful realities, including about other people. And I'm sure that's not what Augustine intends explicitly. Um, he certainly, he knew quite a lot about the evil that people were capable of. But I think without arguing, oh, and I think this really relates back to your comment on the relationship between natural evil and moral evil, that the experience of vulnerability and being preyed upon by other forces on this earth, whether they are natural or other human agents can and does have an intensely damaging effect on people. You know, I my understanding is most child abusers were themselves abused as children. Uh, so right. they, they commit, commit an evil, but they commit an evil because it was first done to them. There's no virtue in having been the victim of that evil. Yeah, I quite agree. That's right. So and one last thing maybe to say about the question of, of lying is that Augustine actually, at least where, where lying is concerned, comes, I think, to a sophisticated place that is echoed later in Bonhoeffer, which he says that um, the, the reason lying is so terrible is because it's an inherent contradiction. The whole purpose of speech is to communicate, and the purpose of lying is to do the opposite of communicate, but to obfuscate. And so he says that, yes, it is true that some people will lie for the sake of the good. So not telling the murderer where the potential victim is hidden. Um, and he acknowledges that. In that case, lying was the right thing to do. But he wants it still to be said that what you praise is the human value of protecting the innocent life, not the lie in and of itself. And he worries that validating the lie as such gives credence to lying as a strategy. And because lying is an inherent contradiction to speech, it should not even be validated in that case. And I think that's a helpful nuance between the two. You can, in this case, rank order the virtues, but it doesn't mean that you have to bless the lying as an actual good. And that's exactly how Bonhoeffer treated his lying uh, or his participation in the plot to assassinate Hitler. He never denied that lying uh, was formally a sin or that murdering Hitler would be a sin, right? Uh, he acknowledged that he was going to sin, but all the, uh, he was going to sin boldly, but all the more boldly believe. Uh, and that freed him to act in, in desperate circumstances. I think that's right. Right. So then speaking of desperate circumstances, let's talk about original sin. All right. That sounds pretty desperate. Uh, I think one thing you have to see here is that Augustine thinks in terms of corporate humanities. He picks up on Paul. There are two humanities, Adam and Christ. And uh, so the doctrine of original sin is really his interpretation of a corporate humanity, uh, Adam, the existence of humanity as Adam. Uh, and we don't have to get into all the metaphysics of that, and we certainly don't have to get into Augustine's uh, 
kind of casual uh, uh, and pre-modern biological understandings of the transmission of original sin on the analogy of an STD or something like that. Uh, uh, the idea is rather that sin is a social phenomena, that that sin forms a city, a polity, a civitas terrena for Augustine, this earthly city, um, a corporate humanity named Adam. And uh, breaking into this, into this strong man's house, Christ has begun to rescue the, the elect and incorporate them into his own humanity, the totus Christus, the total Christ of Jesus and his people. Uh, and so it's in the light of this break-in uh, of the Christ event and the, in the preaching of the gospel and the formation of the church penetrating the world that these reflections on uh, original sin as the, the mass of the unredeemed humanity into which the church by the gospel is penetrating that these thoughts on original sin uh, take take flight. Right. And I think also the flip side for Augustine of original sin is his strong anti-Pelagian teaching against the human ability to save itself um, and that um, good works cannot save you and free will cannot save you. Only God can save you, God in his mercy. Um, but then I, I thought it was interesting how he basically signals that there's, a, a, and I might be uh, projecting a little bit here, my own convictions, but there's really no good way to parse out um, human and divine agency vis-a-vis -vis salvation because they all lead in the wrong direction. So if you say, if you say only God's mercy, totally God's mercy, 100% God's mercy, while that may be true, what it tends to create is contempt for God's mercy and personal lethargy um, and um, contempt, indifference, self-indulgence. I was going to just say grace so cheap you can't give it away. Exactly. But on the other hand, the second you start to say, okay, God does this much, you do the rest, whether it is an enormous amount in high demand religions or just a teeny tiny bit, you know, like a, a good kind of Gabriel Beale sort of deal, like just do what's in you, do as much as you can. And God is so gracious, he'll cover the rest that, you know, either leads to pride or despair. It doesn't actually lead to either the, the proper kind of action or genuine trust in God's mercy. I, I, I've increasingly come to the conviction that there's no way to conceptualize this successfully that does not have a devastating outcome on the soul. And I uh, I was talking to someone um, and saying that I think this is why I am drawn to writing fiction, because I think it's easier to depict these sort of things in the actual narrative format that follows through a human life rather than to try to work out abstract concepts and then, you know, like uh, force a life into it, like into a Procrustean bed. Well, yeah, but I think Augustine would kind of agree with those thoughts, Sarah, but he finds the biblical narrative itself to supply the, uh, the story that affects uh, the, the, rather than the trying to uh, parse it out in propositional statements that would clearly define the human and divine uh, roles in the event of of, of grace uh, 
rescuing uh, the the, uh, lost sinner. Uh, What Augustine always resorts to is narrative. Uh, For example, God foreknew that we would make evil use of our free will, so God prepared to design to bring good even out of the one who did evil so that our evil might not be made of no effect, but nevertheless the Almighty's goodwill might be fulfilled. I mean, that's an example of uh, kind of the Joseph story uh, uh, in action. Uh, it is better to bring good out of evil than to let ev- than not to let evil exist. Uh, that, that God made this judgment in his foreknowledge of human uh, sin uh, to bring good out of evil. And then at the heart of that, you have the brilliant narrative contrast between proud Adam, who wanted to be God and did not want God to be God, as opposed to the humble Son of God. And let me just quote Augustine here. When sins had separated the human race far from God, It was necessary for us to be reconciled to God for the resurrection of our flesh to eternal life by the mediator of one who alone was born, lived, and was killed without sin. That human pride might be rebuked and healed by the humility of God and that we human beings might be shown how far we had wandered from God when he was called back by God incarnate, and an example of obedience was offered to rebellious humanity by the man who is God, when the only begotten took the form of a slave, which had been previously deserved, uh, who had previously deserved nothing, so that the fountain of grace might be opened up. That's a sample of Augustine's really brilliant paraphrasing of the gospel narrative. Hmm. Right. And it's, it's, it's more affective and effective when it's told this way, uh, the story that draws you into it and the, that you are a part of and extend than um, to, to give you an answer like um, you do nothing or you do this much or you do that tiny bit. It's a very different yeah, right. I- impact. Well, I think that must be why at this point then Augustine finally is ready to move on to the second article of the creed and he starts talking Christology. And um, a lot of the stuff here is is very familiar, um, not uh, from the whole patristic tradition and continuing on in Western theology ever after. He talks about the necessity of having a mediator, that Christ, the son of God, is that mediator, that he truly took on human flesh while not ceasing to be human. He was born of a virgin. He was made less than God in his humanity and yet remained equal to God in his divinity. And he affirms the unity of the person of Christ. So all very familiar Christological themes. Yeah. And I would just point out uh, that uh, you can find in the Enchiridion the source of Luther's teaching of the joyful exchange explicitly in his comments on 2 Corinthians 5.21 in the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, Melanchthon picks up the notion of the mediator that you just referenced, the necessity of a mediator. And Melanchthon uses the concept of mediation to explain Christ's saving role. Uh, and there too is also 
uh, Augustine's motif of the sacrifice uh, of Christ on the cross, the sinless Christ in the place of sinful humanity, which he says appeases the wrath of God, though he's quick to point out that the wrath of God is a figure for the justice of divine love being against what is against love. Um, so, I mean, all of these motifs, which are so familiar uh, to Lutherans who know the confessional writings, are can be sourced right here in Augustine's and Caridian. Right. And then uh, he actually moves on pretty quickly from there to pneumatology, the third article on the spirits, um, though this ends up having more content because the, uh, you know, the third article includes baptism in the church and so forth. But first of all, when he talks about the spirits, uh, he has to make the argument, which never occurred to me needed to be made, that the spirit is not the father of the son, which one might think because it is by the power of the Holy Spirit that the Virgin Mary conceives the infant Jesus. Um, right. I, never occurred to me to be a problem, I, but now I can see, oh yes, maybe that does need some explaining. And, um, and uh, Augustine, among other things, has recourse to the classical Trinitarian principle that the works of the Trinity are not separable. So um, they are all together doing the thing that leads to the incarnation of the Son, even if there is some special attribution of the Spirit's power. Nevertheless, that does not make the Spirit the Father of the Son. Only the Father is the Father of the Son. Yeah, but it's also important to point out here that pneumatology or the doctrine of the Holy Spirit is not a fifth wheel in Augustine's theology, like I'm afraid in a lot of modern Lutheranism, which is Christomonistic, where Christ alone gets turned into a kind of a... A, um, a lonely a, Christ. A, a lonely Christ who is not himself conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, not himself baptized in this Holy Spirit, not himself led to the cross and obedience by the Holy Spirit, raised from the dead by the Holy Spirit, so that the risen Christ can send the very same Holy Spirit upon his people, right? Uh, the, the Holy Spirit is a necessary, uh, and I think, this so-called Augustinian imperfection in the doctrine of justification has a lot to say about Lutherans who just don't have any idea of the importance or role of the Holy Spirit in the Christian life. That the Holy Spirit uh, is the one who pours the love of God into the human heart and transforms our affects, our affectations so that we desire uh, Christ. Uh, otherwise, Christ would be nothing to us but a man uh, dying a humiliating death on a cross. End of story. Right. Yeah, I think that's actually one of Augustine's favorite Bible verse, if you could say such a thing. But I, I can't remember what the source is. But where Paul says that the holy that the the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the power of the Spirit. For Augustine, that that is it. That is like the centerpiece for him of what the whole Christian faith is supposed to be doing. Right, and so he says that Christ was conceived by Mary's faith. Mary is the one who conceives Christ in her womb, and it comes about by her faith, and her faith, of course, for Augustine, is the work of the Holy Spirit. 
Right. He also has this uh, lovely um, statement here, Augustine, in Christ's assumption of human nature, grace came to be natural to that nature, allowing no power to sin. This is why grace is signified by the Holy Spirit, because the Spirit himself is so perfectly God that he is also called God's gift. Um, I, I like that both because it's it's Augustine playing with nature and grace and making grace natural to the nature of Christ, but also that there is a, a trinitarian completion in what's going on here that the holy spirit is is so entirely god uh, and and yet can be called god's gift and is is himself grace and the source of grace i thought that was nicely done great and you know this is a place sarah to break in with one more the augustine's basically anthropological orientation that he's doing his theology always with attention to what this means for human beings and you just noticed here that the graced nature of Christ by the Holy Spirit in the Incarnation allowed no power to sin. In Latin, that is um, uh, non posse peccari, not able to sin, non posse peccari. Augustine actually has a kind of a, uh, this might make you nervous about dispensationalism, but he has a kind of a chronolog <laughs> chronological scheme here. He says Adam and Eve were created passe peccari, uh, able to sin. Um, and then after the fall, Adam and his descendants were non passe, non peccari, not able not to sin. In, in other words, fated to sin or uh, liable uh, to sin uh, inevitably. Uh, then he talks about uh, the baptism of Christ and those who are baptized into Christ has passe non peccari. It is possible to resist. It's possible not to sin. That's for the sanctified life, beginning with Christ himself. And then in the vision of God, uh, when we see face to face, so that our desires will never again be deflected or turned away from their prof proper object, which is the Lord God himself non passe peccari, not able uh, to sin, in, unable to sin. So Augustine organizes the whole story of uh, the, the, the anthropological progress of the biblical story from Genesis to Revelation along, along these lines. Yeah, I actually find that useful, and it does not make me afraid of dispensationalism because Augustine explicitly rejects any any variation in God's dealing with us um, between um, at least from Christ until the eschaton, if not from the fall of Adam and Eve until the eschaton. It's the subdivisions within historical time that makes for dispensationalism. And I think Luther is even more explicit in actually saying that there is one way that God has dealt with humanity between fall and eschaton. And the only difference we perceive is whether we were anticipating Christ or whether we are looking back on Christ within historical time. So right. no worries Very there. Good. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So Augustine moves on to baptism, which he says makes Christ our righteousness and causes us to die to sin. And interestingly, he says that through baptism, we participate not only in Christ's crucifixion and burial, 
uh, good Pauline terms, and also resurrection. Oh, that's especially a theme of First Peter, but also even Christ's ascension and session at the right hand of the Father. So I kind of yeah. liked that uh, that full Christological package that you get with baptism, according to Augustine. Also, he repeatedly mentions the baptism of infants. And... Um, I, I had not realized that this was so explicitly mentioned by Augustine and is actually quite important for his argument. And he clearly asserts it as a positive good to baptize infants. So right. it's been around because, a long time, folks. Because of the corporate humanity teaching that we are all children of Adam. In Adam, we have all been one, one huge rebellious man, as the hymn text says. Um, and you had a, a comment here about a, a Christus Victor type of account of atonement. You want to say something about that? Oh, you know, he doesn't really go that deeply into questions of, you know, the how of salvation. But he he's when he does in, in passing remark on it, it's basically the victory of Christ over sin, death and the devil. Well, that's more Luther's term. But that I mean, those are also the enemies for for Augustine. He does not get deeply into expiation, propitiation, um, things, uh, the mechanism, the sort of things that that Anselm would bring up later. Yeah, but I, I just want to mention here that he does lay down a certain principle that I think is very important because I think too many contemporary Lutherans regard Christus Victor as a pretext for saying that the atonement is simply a raw act of power. Uh, God can assert God's power by forgiving sins. You want to argue with God about that? Uh, <laughs> God can assert God's power by overthrowing the devil. You want to argue with God about that? He's the boss. He can do what he wants. I think Augustine finds that kind of thinking uh, offensive. It was a just victory, not simply an act of power. I'm quoting Augustine. Baptism found nothing in Jesus to wash away, just as death found nothing in him to punish, that the, double, that the devil might be overcome, uh, uh, not by power and violence, but by truth and justice. And since the devil had most wickedly killed Christ when he committed no sin uh, to deserve this death, the devil might fully deserve to lose those whom he justly held captive because of their sin. I think that's really a very important principle that's being announced here, that the atonement is not simply a raw victory, a divine assertion of power, but it is a morally just overthrowing of the tyranny of the devil. Mm. You can see that he's there kind of a median between Gregory of Nyssa, which is who is about the defeat of the devil, but kind of by trickery, and um, Anselm, who's very keenly interested in justice, but emphasizes less the victory part, uh, especially over the devil, because Anselm sees it more as an internal God problem than a God versus his enemies problem. So then Augustine goes on to treat the church and the forgiveness of sins more or less together. Um, he, uh, I, I, I like this, he said, the right order of the creed demanded that the church be made subordinate to the Trinity. <laughs> so the, the church is not more important than God. Um, the church is the temple of God, the Holy Trinity. And um, so the, the right ordering of, of, of obedience is um, 
necessary there. Of course, Augustine is going to see less of a conflict between God and church than um, perhaps would come up later in history. Um, and then he gets, he has quite a lot to say about forgiveness of sins. I found this uh, quite moving. He, uh, of course, says you are not allowed to manipulate um, God by uh, using baptism or absolution to get away with more sins. That's not okay. He makes some gestures toward what may have been a developing belief in purgatory and wondering what we might be able to do for the dead. And he's actually quite pastoral on this. He's like, well, you know, it's helpful to the living if they think they can do something for the dead. Whether or not it helps the dead is, you know, who knows, really. Mm-hmm. Um, he says that um, he, he has a, a, a working um, distinction between, you know, I think what would come to be called, maybe already were called venial sins and mortal sins. He says the, the praying of the Our Father alone, obviously he would mean sincerely from the heart, is adequate to wipe out um, minor sins. Um, but then he makes this really interesting move to compare forgiveness of others as a form of almsgiving, which is very striking. Um, and he says that to, to forgive someone else's sins is actually to bestow good on them the same way giving, you know, coins to a poor person would be. And, um, but he recognizes that um, unlike in the case of almsgiving, the recipient of your forgiveness might not be so grateful for it. Uh, and he, so he says, many benefits are bestowed on the unwilling and men frequently are found to be their own enemies while those they suppose to be their enemies are their true friends. So he <laughs> says, you know, you shouldn't forgive on the assumption that it's going to make the forgiven person love you. It might have the exact opposite effect and make them resentful. But he says, nevertheless, you are to strive to love your enemy and forgive those who have injured you. But then he makes one more move, which blew my mind. He says, yet before you do any of this, you first have to give alms toward yourself. You're, you are first a neighbor to yourself. And the way you first give alms to yourself is to get yourselves baptized and to receive God's own forgiveness. Wow. Now there's a doctrine of self-care that I can really get into. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and isn't that isn't that so true? It is it is very hard to extend forgiveness towards others until you have some confidence of being forgiven yourself and being forgiven is going to increase your mercy towards those who have harmed you and and create a desire for forgiveness that would not otherwise exist. A wise pastor, he knows that you cannot squeeze blood out of a turnip and you cannot (laughs) squeeze forgiveness out of an unforgiven person. Right, right. And it's just, it's so interesting to me that he he is able to think of, of, of your own self as a recipient of yourself's good. I mean, we, we so often have a perception of Augustine as being so severe, so ascetic, and yet he, he recognizes the necessity of granting to yourself a good that you need as the source of your good towards others. So, you know, Augustine, the, the lots of familiar stuff here, but, you know, you go through Augustine and he just comes out with these things that blindside you with their brilliance. So, right. I agree. Well, but then <laughs> he goes on to say that we are pretty bad at judging what actually is a severe sin and what's a mild one. And one of his examples of a very, very severe sin is a married couple <gasps> making love for the fun of it. <laughs> Clearly, people think that that's OK, but it's not. And Augustine is there to set you right. He also mentions taking uh, cases to the law courts outside of the church and calling someone you fool, which at least comes from the Sermon on the Mount. I do not recall Jesus talking about married people making love in the Sermon on the Mount as a horrible, horrible sin. But, you know, what do I know? Well, 
Yes, let's just say it's, it's better just to pass over that in <laughs> embarrassed silence. Fair enough. Well, that brings us along to the resurrection of the dead. Uh, and so um, Augustine deals with a lot of the questions that actually came up in the city of God, like what do you do about um, miscarriages, fetuses that never grew even to baby, uh, you know, like a full-born full-term babiness, deformities, amputations, what happens to your hair and fingernails. And again, Augustine just kind of wipes it all out by saying, God is an artist, I love that, who works in marvelous and mysterious ways, which will take care that nothing unbecoming will result in the life to come. So... That's nice. Uh, he also, I thought this was a little bit bizarre, but perhaps the source of Dante's idea, he says that um, damnation will be slightly more tolerable for people who create, who commit slightly less horrible sins. And um, I don't really know what to make of that of kindness on God's part. Like your damnation is slightly less horrible than that other guy's. <laughs> yep. Yes. Uh, again, I think just like uh, with the the lovemaking episode, let us pass over this with embarrassed <laughs> silence and move on to more fruitful discussions. Okay. Well, then we come on to double predestination and God's judgment. Um, and it, it's pretty much the usual stuff. Augustine assumes that not all, not even a majority will be saved. He sort of makes the argument that um, evil is good or that God would not allow evil unless it created a greater good. I have mixed feelings about that argument. Um, but he does grant finally in the end that there is a very great difference between what is fitting for man to will and what is fitting for God to will. And therefore, drawing too many conclusions about God's permissive will towards evil is uh, probably not something we should get ourselves too deeply involved in. And he himself struggles with how to explain that God states that he wills the salvation of all, and yet evidently does not will the salvation of all since most people are not saved. Yeah, he basically says, well, it really means that God wills the salvation of all types of people. Not all people, but all types of people. <laughs> That's kind of the dodge that he executes there. On this whole issue of, of predestination, I think it's very important to realize that for Augustine, and perhaps for one of his other great 16th century followers, John Calvin, uh, the bedrock conviction for them is divine sovereignty. Um, and, and then they're trying to square divine sovereignty with, to them, the seemingly inevitable fact that many are called but few are chosen. And that, that's kind of the, the, the conundrum that they're in. Uh, there's, here's a little quote uh, from the Enchiridion. Uh, he quotes Psalm 115, verse 3, Our God is in the heavens. He has done whatever he willed. And then he comments, This is not true if there are things that he willed but did not do, or what would be more unworthy if what the Almighty willed was prevented from happening by the will of man. So nothing happens unless the Almighty wills it whether by allowing it to happen or by doing it himself, close quote. And I think for Augustine and for John Calvin a millennium later, uh, to be ignorant of this sovereignty of God is, to be, is the most miserable thing of all, and that it is the knowledge that God is in heaven and he rules, he is the Lord, 
whatever happens is somehow God's will, and that if you know that, you can steal yourself and survive anything. I think that that is perhaps a, a, a version of the Christian faith we might have questions about, but I think we need to acknowledge that that's what it meant for these people, Augustine and Calvin. Yeah, and there is certainly an integrity to it, uh, even if one does not fully agree with it. Even Bonhoeffer, during the uh, height of Nazi power, uh, had a debate with his friend Betke uh, about this problem. And uh, Bonhoeffer talked about singing the uh, the Lutheran hymn, uh, Praise to the Lord the Almighty, uh, King of creation, who wondrously reigns, and so forth and so on. The German version of that hymn. And uh, Betka said, you know, uh, how can you say that during this awful time? Where is God's wonderful reign on the earth? And Bonhoeffer replied to him, I could not survive this time without singing that hymn. Right. So in that case, the doctrine of sovereignty is an apocalyptic doctrine for uh, beleaguered and fighting people trying to make their way against the, the evil forces arrayed around them. That's very different from a, a conception of sovereignty in complacence or wealth or indifference um, or to tell other people to shut up and stop complaining. That's right. Rather than have compassion for people in their struggles and uh, be in solidarity with them and to protest against the injustice that they're experiencing. And I think this really relates back to what we were saying, too, about about knowledge and its partiality and ambiguity. And I think maybe over the years that we've been doing this, what we've also communicated is not only the content of the doctrine, which, you know, we, we strive as best we can to to understand, but also to be really aware that doctrines are then deployed and there are good and evil ways of deploying doctrines. And we object to people chucking out doctrines because they have experienced them deployed in an evil way. Nevertheless, deploying right. a good doctrine in an evil way is an evil thing to do and, you know, must be guarded against. And I think that's where, where the love participates in, in the faith um, when it comes to talking theology. Uses. This is the, the Reformation principle of the use the uses. What do you do with the doctrine? Do you use it to curse or to bless? Do you use it to obligate or to liberate? You know, and so raising that question about how you use the doctrine is exceedingly important if you're genuinely understanding the Reformation iteration of Augustinian theology. Right. Well, we're well over an hour now, and we have just gotten to the end of the creed, and Augustine in a panic realizes that he was supposed to write about the Lord's Prayer too. So we get a much shorter <laughs> account where he makes the uh, elemental observation that the first three petitions of the Lord's Prayer are eternal and will perdure in heaven, whereas the last four are temporal and will expire, and therefore relate mainly to hope. And then he basically just wraps up with some thoughts about the relationship between faith faith and love. And he asserts there is no true faith without love. Yet he still says faith has a kind of primacy. What faith lacks in love, it recognizes it lacks and asks to receive. So one of the things faith does is is to summon love by God's power to ask for it. And so in that way faith can ultimately achieve what the law commands when such love is granted. 
Uh, Augustine observes, without the Holy Spirit, the law may bid, but it cannot aid. Moreover, it can make of man a transgressor. So we see in that the seeds of Luther's observations on the, uh, based on Paul, of course, also of the ambiguous relationship we have also to the law, which can uh, make sin worse rather than better. Uh, he goes on, Augustine goes on, faith leads to a growth in hope and love by the present power of the Spirit of God. So again, the importance for Augustine of the Spirit's active presence in the soul. And he says, although there is still in man a power that fights against the Spirit, his infirmity not yet being fully healed, yet the righteous lives by faith and lives righteously insofar as he does not yield to his evil desires. And yet, even so, Augustine again says, perfection only will take place in the resurrection, and the end and purpose of both the law and our salvation is love of God and love of neighbor. So indeed, all things are tending and trending towards love by God's power. That is where we are headed. And that's a perfect way to end this podcast on the Enchiridion of faith, hope, and love. All things are aimed at love. Love is the final reality, incorporation into the triune life of love, the vision of God in which our wayward hearts will be fixed forever in a gaze that cannot be broken, and therefore non passe peccare, not able ever again to sin, freed from sorrow, freed from sin, as the hymn text says. Right. And I think this is why we we continue to say we are justified by faith, not by love, because faith is what starts us on the journey. But love is infinite. You cannot be justified by love because how can you ever love enough? Love by its nature is infinite. So that is not what sets you right with God, but that is God's intention for you, that you love infinitely as God loves. Yeah, you can read the Enchiridion, though, Sarah, where, where Augustine is saying, you know, that love is necessary for, for justification. There are passages in there. So it's it's a mixed legacy. And, and ironically, the Calvinists, Lutherans, and, and Catholics of the 16th century can all claim Augustine's legacy. Um that may indicate that there's some in, incoherencies in Augustine himself, perhaps. Um, and that's but that's a topic for another day. I hope listeners to this podcast will pick up a copy of the Enchiridion, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest it. Let us conclude with Augustine's own words on the Enchiridion and attribute it as well to this podcast. May its usefulness match its prolixity. <laughs> Next time on the show, we will be talking about Martin Luther's bondage of the will. Thanks for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.